Hello there. Well, I do hope that you're enjoying this holiday weekend as we celebrate together really what it means to be an American. I was born in England, but I'm delighted and privileged to call myself an American. And so I celebrate with you this, this celebration of our nation's birthday. But of course, over this weekend, there'll be lots of ways for us to celebrate, have fun, and obviously spend time with people that perhaps we would not normally be spending a great deal of time with, members of our family who have come into town, or perhaps we've gone to them, and friends and neighbors. And here is an opportunity for us to consider how it is that we position ourselves as followers of Jesus, as believers in the gospel. What's it like as we consider these celebrations? What's it like for us to be the most winsome and the most effective in our witness? There's nothing worse than coming away from one of these events feeling as though you could have said something and you didn't. You could have offered a witness and you weren't able to. Or coming away from one of these celebrations, feeling like you overstepped and pushed people away. So today I just want to consider a, a couple of thoughts as we, as we look at this devotional. It'll be shorter than most Sundays. As we look at this devotional, based upon really the final words of Paul's testimony before King Agrippa, Bernice, and Governor Festus, there in Caesarea. And I'm going to read from Acts chapter 26 and verse 19, basically continuing on from where we were last week when we considered the subjects of mercy and grace as they reveal themselves to us in the life of Paul. But here in Acts 26 verse 19, it says this, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray that God not only you, but all those who are listening to me today may become what I am, 
except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. They left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, this man is, doing, is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So we have this really quite magnificent scene. A public gathering has been called by Governor Festus to honor King Agrippa, whose territory did not extend to this part of the Holy Land, but was largely restricted to the northern part of what used to be known as the land, the land that God had given to his people Israel. King Agrippa, with his sister Bernice, had made this rather triumphal entry to this principal city here in Roman-occupied territory. And as Festus gathers the people to this event, he's gathering all of the senior officers. He's probably gathering even the junior officers from the legions that are stationed there in the garrison at Caesarea. He's calling together the civic and religious leaders. He's calling together the great and the good. And Paul, probably carrying a light chain that connects him to the Roman soldier who will accompany him on his journey to Rome, Paul begins to give his defense. And with some drama, as is often the case with Paul in public speaking, he motions with his hand so as to indicate it's time now to stop speaking and time now to start listening. And as we've seen, he articulates in the fullest form what it was that he was before he became a follower of Christ and what it was that he was after Jesus apprehended him in his headlong pursuit of Christians on the road to Damascus. Paul is very open. He's very transparent. He's incredibly honest about his frailties and his weaknesses. He talks about his obsession in pursuing Christians. He talks about this compulsive desire to imprison and even see them killed. And he reveals a heart in turmoil, a heart that when Jesus apprehends him is a heart that Jesus transforms, a heart that is renewed from the inside to the outside. And so Paul is offering a, a really interesting, an interesting insight into the way that he understood the task of being a witness. Here he is, perhaps in one of the great occasions of his life, being able to offer a witness to others. And he doesn't offer a witness that hides any of the reality of his life, but he doesn't, he doesn't kind of pretend that he was worse than he was. There's nothing worse than one of those testimonies that we hear of a life of degradation, a life of darkness, a life of rebellion and waywardness. And then the person says, and then at the age of seven, I gloriously became a Christian. We don't want to over-promote the path 
of darkness, but we want to be clear and honest about what it is that we've come from and what it is that we're going to. So Paul's transparency, his, his modesty about who he is and his meekness in relation to the darkness of his previous life is something that he begins with. And then we see this remarkable compulsion turned away from darkness towards the light, a compulsion that perhaps is more described as an inner motivation. Jesus has given him faith. Jesus has poured out light and love upon him. Jesus has shown him mercy for his sins and given him grace to receive a new life and walk towards the future. And this motivation within him is a compelling message, the message of a man whose life has been utterly transformed. And then finally, he provides not only a life that is viewed from a meek perspective, a life that is now revealed as one motivated by the goodness of God and the power of the Spirit, but now a life that he offers as a mirror, a life where people can look at his life and assess their own. They can look at his life and come to a determination about where they are in the journey that Paul has been on. They can, they can think through what it is that he's describing and place themselves on that same path, on that same journey. In a couple of months' time, we'll be looking at the way in which the Bible offers this narrative on every occasion that it reveals the heroes of the Old and New Testament. And in doing that, we'll be able to identify with those women and men as they reveal what it is to walk with God. And of course, that's the whole point of a story. The story is all about giving people points of connection and identification. Paul offering his life as a clear mirror means that we can then imitate what it is that he's offering. That's why at the end he says, I wish all great or small, whoever they might be within this audience, from the king himself through to the least person within the company of this gathering, great or small, would be like me. There's an invitation. The mirror of his life offers two things. It offers an invitation to be like Paul and a challenge. Notice that he finishes with a challenge, except for these chains. I'm sure that the Roman soldier who had been assigned the task of looking after Paul thought, well, I would have liked that too. Because, of course, this poor man is now attached to Paul for the months and, in fact, years that he will accompany him all the way to the throne room of Caesar. And we know from the later epistles that are written during his imprisonment in Rome that the guard 
that has been overseeing him has come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I don't think he stood a chance, do you? But here, here Paul offers the challenge because he describes his life as a life of, of motivation, a life that is now compelled by the love of God and by the power of the Spirit. But this life is a life that comes into contact with opposition and suffering, difficulty and challenge every day, except for these chains. Paul is saying, obviously, the same words that Jesus would offer, that if you're to follow, you're to take up your cross. If you're to follow, you're to, you're to come to the understanding and awareness that chains may be part of your journey. And so what can we draw out from what it is that Paul offers us? Perhaps over the grill, perhaps with a beer in your hand or a soft drink, perhaps as you're speaking with young or old, great or good. What is it that Paul offers us as, as a model witness? Well, what he offers us is a modest and meek disposition towards his audience. He offers us an image of vulnerability and transparency, a person that's not prepared to cover up the dark path that he's been on. He's not prepared to cover up the, the internal struggles and the, and the unhelpful motivations that, that led him away from Christ. And so he offers us that as a model, this meek and modest posture, stance, and disposition. He offers us an insight into the compelling and attractive nature of a person that is motivated by the goodness, by the love, and by the power of God. Our motivation, of course, is the same, but so often our motivation gets captured by other things in the world. As we offer our witness, let's ask God to uncover the deep motivation that he's now placed within us because we've been the recipients of the gospel of peace. That, that gospel that has transformed and changed us based as it is on the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. That motivation, that needs to be uncovered because people find that deeply attractive and deeply winsome and, and deeply compelling and, and, and endlessly, endlessly inviting. And then finally, we offer our life as a mirror. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul says that he wants other people to be like him. He's described himself in other than glowing terms. He's described himself as a person with massive internal struggles. But he wants other people to be like him. Not because he's great, but because he's encountered the goodness of God. Not because he's a symbol of virtue, but because Jesus has taken his life and transformed it 
and filled him with his life and power. And so he wants others to be like him because he has received all of the grace that God has poured out on him, all of the mercy that set him free. And so he wants others to experience that also. And although the path of every follower will be marked with struggle and suffering, he doesn't want them necessarily to carry the same difficulties that he's had to carry. And so he does want them to be like him, perhaps being delivered from the particular struggles that he has. And so there we have it, the modest and meek disposition, the motivation that comes from knowing the goodness and the love of God poured out from his gracious heart towards us, and then our life as a mirror to others, that they might become as we are. Let's pray together. Lord, give us fun and joy and happy homecomings this weekend. Lord, as we celebrate the privilege that we have for being part of this great nation, we pray, Lord, that the greatest celebration would be the one that we carry in our hearts of knowing you. And Lord, may it be that as we spend time with our neighbors that, that your winsome presence would touch the hearts of those around us and draw them to yourself. And Lord, may it be that we see fruit and a harvest. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Have a fun time, everyone. God bless.